morning is from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, we're going to read from chapter 2 and verse 1. First Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse Thessalonians 2, 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much, that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each one of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Amen. Well, we come this morning to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, the second chapter of that letter. And Paul is responding to some of the criticism that he has been receiving in Thessalonica. There has been a lot of criticism leveled at the Apostle Paul, both as a man and as a minister of the gospel. The Greek philosopher 
Aristotle said, to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. Well, that's not the Christian life, and so that was not the life for the Apostle Paul, and he faced criticism for what he said and what he did and who he was often. And some of it was ferocious. He faced it face to face and he faced it behind his back too. And so just a few sentences into the sermon already, we have been provided with a challenge. Am I, are you willing to face criticism for Christ? Are you willing to be challenged face to face? Am I willing to be gossiped about behind my back for what we have said, for what we have done, for who we are? for Christ. I wonder if you can say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live. Whatever those words mean, surely they must mean that we are willing to at least be criticized for Christ and for our service in his name. We are not to be argumentative uh, or contentious people. I think I said a number of weeks ago that we are, as followers of Christ, to be people of peace. But there does come a time when we are to challenge falsehood, to confront falsehood with truth. And that's what Paul does in this chapter, in these verses before us this morning. And he does so not because his ego has been dented, but because he wants to defend and to protect the work that has begun in the lives of these Thessalonian believers. They're a small, uh, in many ways vulnerable, fellowship of God's people. They are young in the faith. So Paul has gone with his little uh, group, his band of brothers, and he has shared the good news of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And some people have come to faith in Jesus. Now he has left. We might say that as he went and shared the good news, it's like lighting a, a fire. God has been pleased to use the work of Paul and to use the work of uh, Timothy and to use the work of Silas to light this fire. And it's burning, but they've, they've left now. And there are people in the city who want to blow the flames out. And, and this letter, it is like Paul wanting to put his arms around the flames, to protect them from the winds that threaten them, to allow this church to keep burning for Jesus. 
And if they begin to believe the lies that are being told about the Apostle Paul, then their very existence will be thrown into doubt. So he offers us, or he offers them, a reminder of what he did and what he said and how he conducted himself when he was with them. And in so doing, he has provided us with a model of the faithful minister of Christ. And you might think, given what I shared a wee bit earlier, well, that's a good message for this morning because we can, we can judge how you've done over the last 11 uh, or so years and we can be reminded of what we'll, we might be looking for in the not-too-distant future. But actually, we are all, in a broader sense, ministers of Christ and his gospel, aren't we? Those of us who are Christians. A minister is just a servant. That's what the word means. We are all servants of Jesus if we are Christians. We are all servants of the gospel if we are Christians. And so this chapter, these verses are instructive not just for me or for people who are called to stand in places like this and preach every Sunday, but for all of us who call ourselves Christians. There are lessons to be learned for all who claim to be in Christ. For us as individuals and for the church itself. So Paul mounts a defense of his ministry using three uh, metaphors. And we're going to spend most of our time in the first of those three because I think if we get the first one right, the second and the third just, just fall naturally into place. So the first of the three metaphors that Paul uses is that of a faithful steward. That's verses 1 to 6, a faithful steward. If you look at verse 3, the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. That's the language of a steward, isn't it? Entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. So they have been given something. They have been entrusted with something. Something has been uh, given from the very hands of God into the hands of these men, into the hands of Paul and his co-workers. Gospel, you will know, means very simply, good news. Good news is given to be shared. And that's what these men have been doing. Let's go back to verse 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. 
they are telling, they are speaking the good news of the gospel. They are using words to share this news. Central to the Christian faith is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, of who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done by His incarnation, by the life that He lived, by the death that He died, by His, His resurrection and ascension. And this news must be shared with words. It's not enough to be a really nice person. You can't share news by being a really nice person. Imagine switching on BBC News 24 when you get home and you just see a really nice person sitting behind a desk. You don't, you don't get the news, do you? Whatever you get, you don't get the news. But it can be a frightening thing to share news that people maybe don't want to hear. And you get the impression in these words of Paul that at times it was frightening for him. In the face of strong opposition, he dared to tell them the good news. So if you feel small and weak and fragile in the face of opposition, they know that you are in good company. They dared to speak, NIV. Most translations say they spoke boldly with God's help. You're in good company, but be assured, God will help you as you step out of your comfort zone to speak of His Son. So the gospel is good news about Jesus, His perfect life, the sinner's death He died on the cross for us, and His triumphant resurrection and ascension, and inherent within that good news, bound up within it, unable to be, to be teased apart and pulled out of it, is an appeal to respond to the good news. An exhortation, a summons to respond in repentance and in faith. With the help of our God, verse 2, we dared to tell you His gospel in spite of strong opposition for the appeal we make, verse 3. So, Inside the good news is an appeal. It is an appeal that people would turn to Jesus and trust in Jesus and give themselves to Jesus. That was their appeal. That was the message that God had given them to share. And that is the message that God still gives to His messengers, to His ministers, to His servants, to give to the world today. This is the message that can bring 
people from darkness to light and from death to life, just as it did all those years ago. Sometimes we sing, I should have picked this, I suppose, but I didn't this morning. Sometimes we sing, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Quickening is an old word for life-giving. Life-giving ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. How did this transformation happen? It happened through an encounter with the good news. Maybe many encounters with the good news of the gospel of Christ Jesus. This news is precious and priceless and powerful. And Paul was a faithful steward of this precious gift. It's easy, of course, to come to places like this and to be surrounded by people like us and to celebrate this good news, to sing about this good news, to rejoice in this good news, to affirm that we believe in this good news. But then we step out into the streets of Airdrie, to our homes, to our places of work or study, and we're surrounded by people who don't believe it. And maybe don't want to hear it. And it's an awful lot more difficult to affirm that we believe it and to share it with others. It's frightening. And we can feel ourselves under pressure to say nothing or to to edit the good news. uh, To soften it. To share the bits that are palatable but to say nothing of the bits that are not palatable. And that has always been the case. It's not a new thing. That was the case in Paul's day. That was the case in Spurgeon's day. So Spurgeon, uh, many years ago, obviously, said the old truth that Calvin preached, that Augustine preached, that Paul preached, is a truth that I must preach today or else be found false to my conscience and my God. I cannot shape the truth. I know of no such thing as paring off the rough edges of a doctrine. John Knox's gospel is my gospel. That which thundered through Scotland must thunder through England Again, well, let me say on this 150th anniversary of the Baptist Union of Scotland that that which thundered through Scotland must thunder through Scotland again because there's a lot of paring off of the hard edges of the gospel. There's a lot of preaching the stuff that we think people will like to hear but leaving out the other stuff that's more difficult to say. But if we want to be faithful ministers, faithful stewards of the good news of the gospel, and we have to share it in its entirety and trust that God will use it in ways which far exceed 
our expectations and also trust that God will help us and strengthen us as we step out and stand up and speak for him. Paul says, the appeal we make to you does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. So two things. Firstly, it doesn't spring from error. This is not a false message. You can be very sincere in what you believe and still be sincerely wrong. Uh, That's not what Paul brought to Thessalonica. But you can also have the right message with the wrong motives. That's the second thing. And again, that's not true of Paul. He's not preaching the gospel for popularity or for wealth or for any such thing. He comes with the right message for the right reason. Not a false message, and he is not a false messenger. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are faithful stewards of the gift of the gospel and the calling of God on their lives. Faithful stewards and faithful servants. And what more moving metaphor could Paul use as he moves in to his second one, as we move to our second point, than that of a nursing mother. That's the image in verse 7. A mother feeding her children that which they need to live and to grow and to flourish, not taking from her children, but giving to them from her very self in love. And so Paul didn't see himself as a professional worker uh, trying to climb a ladder or earn a wage. He says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. I'll take this opportunity to say thank you again. Thank you for allowing us to share something of our lives with you. Thank you for sharing your lives with me, with us. This is the Christian life, a community of people living together, encouraging each other with the good news of the gospel, but not standing aloof and apart, sharing each other's lives together. And in the last metaphor, not just the loving, nursing mother, but the father offering his fatherly support and guidance. For you know that we dealt with each of you, verse 11, as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. I was at a football pitch not far from here yesterday morning, Uh, offering Katie from the sidelines my encouragement, comfort, and urging. Uh, 
Truth be told, I focused more on the urging, and Deborah covered the comforting and encouraging as uh, we shared our wisdom from the touchline. Why were we there cheering her on? We were there because we wanted her to do the best she could do, to be the best she could be, to, to eke every ounce of enjoyment out of the game of football. And we want her to, to grow as a footballer. We want her manager to think of Katie Murphy and to think, yes, she's worthy of the badge. She's worthy of putting the strip on and playing for this great club. Of course, Bill Shankly was wrong. Football is not more important than life and death, but we are part of something that is. Listen to those words again, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is a call to Christian service. Whether you have the title minister or pastor or elder or deacon or not, if you are a believer in Jesus, then you are a minister. You are a servant, a servant of Jesus and a servant of his gospel. This is what God has entrusted into our hands. Not into the hands of a select group. He has given this precious gift to all of us. And we are to love and to encourage and to urge each other to be found faithful. Let's make that our great goal and our passionate prayer, now and always. Paul was a great example of a faithful minister, a faithful steward and servant. But he wasn't the perfect example. We press on looking ultimately not to Paul or to Silas or to Timothy, but to Jesus, the author and perfecter of her our faith. So let's, with that in our minds, stand to sing.